Hello, welcome to a Book Shambles Extra. So that means extra fast admin announcements. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to help support the show, get yourself some rewards, uh, help us keep making the show, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you need to go. As little as $1 a month really helps us out. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And our annual Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People gigs are just around the corner, December 14, 15, 19 and 20 at the beautiful King's Place in London, hosted by Robin with lots of special guests. Josie Long, Grace Petrie, Ben Goldacre, Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Joe Neary, the Octavia Poetry Collective and lots, lots more. Tickets at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. And, of course, Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now. If you haven't got a copy of that yet, uh, get one for yourself and it would make a great Christmas present for someone as well. So now on to the second episode of this week. Here is Robin chatting to Martin Rousen. Hello, welcome to a hectic, hectic book tour, Book Shambles, recorded in Toronto. And uh, today's guest is Martin Rosen, who I could have recorded in London, but um, he happened to be in Toronto and I happened to be in Toronto for 36 hours, and so we recorded it here, and this is the conversation we had. Cartoonist, author, poet, uh, what else are you, Martin? Um, museum bureaucrat. Museum bureaucrat, Martin Rosen, and also, this was the bit that... Now, I used to say Rosen, but it's Rosen, isn't it? No, it's Rosen. Oh, I've always said Rosen, and then someone said Rosen the other well, day. what do they know? Yeah. Look, look it's, it's very simple. I, I was having uh, dinner last night with uh, some Canadian cartoonists. I'd never met before, absolutely wonderful people. I knew them on the, in the digital realm, where you don't use names out loud. And one of them said, just halfway through the evening, said Rosen, and I said, no, no, it's Rosen, it's not Rosen. And I realised that the easiest way of doing this is to say that our daughter is called Rose. And who in their right mind would call their daughter Rose Rousen? Mm. They obviously call, you call them Klaus Rousen, but you wouldn't call them Rose Rousen. But that's the Zoe Zowie Bowie conundrum, yeah. isn't it, as well? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, lot of tricky things there. Because people say, surely he was Zowie Bowie, but actually it's Bowie. Zowie Bowie. So I don't know what's going on yeah. there. <laughs> Um, now, also, by the way, if you do get a chance, there's a great comic shop called The Beguiling on College Street. I recommend it. Oh, okay. If you want to have a little look at that. Yeah. Because uh, that's why I was slightly late. I've been to uh, two bookshops that I like in Toronto, which is She Said Boom, uh, and uh, which is a general bookshop and record shop in <coughs> Beguiling. So that's all the plugging out of the way. Well, let's start off with... Now, this interested me. I had an hour and 27-minute car journey with Kenneth Baker, the uh, former education minister of the Thatcher government, and um, you came up quite a lot. Well, that's nice. Yeah. My noble Lord Baker of Dorking. Fill, yeah. Fill in, fill in the rest of the limerick and yourself. He, he said yeah. he'd been round your house. He's just got a bust of Karl Marx. He's got a bust of Karl Marx. Yes, I have got a bust of Karl Marx. Yeah. I've also got a bust of uh, Mao Zedong and a nice terracotta statue of Lenin. But that's, I, was, I was interested because he's involved in the cartoon museum mm-hmm. and he loves satire. Yep. And I thought he himself was, was probably one of the most famous spitting image puppets, being yep. this kind of you know, slug. Um, and so when you've met up, how do you find those moments where uh, there are people who are enormous admirers of your work and everything that they ultimately represent ethically is frequently uh, a long way from your own personal manifesto? It's a very weird business because uh, politics is a very weird business. We are recording this while, for all we know, 
the entire British establishment, political establishment, is being machine gunned by monkeys from Mars for their serial crimes. And, um, you know, I've met quite a few of these people, and actually, despite their opinions, I like them. Because it's like, you know, they used to say in the army, you salute the uniform, mm. despite the shit inside it. Um, and people have misguided opinions. Most politicians, even the most t terrible ones, probably think they're doing the right thing, probably think they're involved in public service. I think there are very few genuine crooks. Uh, I think there are a lot of misguided cranks, but there are very few genuine crooks. So we're we going to look lovingly at Dominic Rabb and Esther McVeigh. Uh, no. Now, this is the bit that worries me, because I do think... <laughs> seeing there also, a lot of them... I, I'm, when I say they're not crooks, I don't say they're sort of wonderful people. I mean, Dominic Rabb, I've never met Dominic Rabb. If, if I saw Dominic Rabb, if he came in here now, I'd be hard-pressed to work out who he was, to be honest. Um, and... Uh, Politicians, in my experience, are, are for the most part very peculiar people because they are really. When you know they say politics is show business for ugly people, it's worse than that. Essentially, they're 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 hobbyists. Certainly, British politics in the last twenty five years. I mean, I've been a professional cartoonist for thirty five years, so I've seen the slow degeneration of the political classes. Because if you look back to whatever you thought about people like Willie Whitelaw or Reginald Maudlin or. Mm. Um, Dennis Healy and things like that, they had a whiff of statesmanship to them. Um, mm. There was something about them, there was a, sort of a kind of heft to them. And then I think it's because we, um, as, as the English frequently do, we willingly went along with the mad experiments of mad people, whereas we previously went along with the Industrial Revolution and the welfare state, and then we went along with sort of neoliberalism, which wasn't called neoliberalism then, it was called Thatcherism, you know. And the whole idea of that is that politics is irrelevant because the market will sort out everything. Everything is subject to market forces. And so the only people who are going to go into politics, because they're not going to change anything because they can't water the market, because the market is all-powerful. It's the hidden hand of the market. So the only people who are going to go into it are, are hobbyists and cranks for whom their politics is their hobby. And the first example of this was William Hague, who, of course, spoke at the Tory party conference when he was 16 who was sitting in his bedroom, not doing what most 16-year-olds do in their bedroom, but instead listening to the speeches of Winston Churchill. And possibly doing what most 16-year-olds do. Well, he might yeah. have been doing something else as well. Yeah, we don't know about that. Um, and, you know, when he became leader of the Tory party, this, this was like a, um, a train spotter getting to drive the flying Scotsman. Being on the footplay, going, oh, look at me, mom, toot, toot, isn't it great? The whole thing derails, all the passengers get killed. It doesn't matter because he's got the selfie. And at the 2015 election, which... You know, for me, I mean, the last two and a half years of British politics have been horrific, but at least they've been interesting. And prior to that, in the 2015 election, I just was almost despairing of my craft. Because I thought, what is the point of this? This has got nothing to do with anybody except the people playing the game. So you had Cameron standing in empty warehouses, surrounded by 20 party workers pretending to be a crowd, and 500 photographers and taking a selfie. And you had uh, poor old Ed Miliband uh, taking a selfie with his policy rockery. Mm. Uh, and it was <laughs> it was got nothing to do with anybody. And... And I think that's why people voted Brexit, because they just thought, well, what's this got to do with us? These people... See, I, I wonder, is it because the, the, the increase in the number of journalists and PR people... Now, they're people who have to very be often, quite, very have, often have synonymous a on, on, on the fact. Well, exactly, yeah. well, I would agree. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, the idea is that you have to have a Stalinist <laughs> vision of your previous thoughts for yeah. the next Tuesday's column yeah. or next uh, week's campaign, which is now very pro-margarine and very anti-butter. Well, <laughs> only two <laughs> weeks ago, you yeah. wouldn't have margarine near you. 
Now you're sitting in a car shaped like a tub of it. You know, this is... And I think that that... Because what I thought with in, in this bazaar, which I'm sure you've had, where you, you know, when you go to a book festival, you often find yourself in a green room with all manner of... Uh, to be honest, I left the yurt that Toby Young was in. Um, but it was... Uh, that know, sounds like the beginning of a wonderful song. I left the yurt yeah, yeah, and Toby I Young was in. The yurt. <laughs> 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 the old yurt. Um, but it was... Uh, but I, what I did think talking to Kenneth Baker was he was interested in an enormous number of things in a way that I haven't with, with more recent politicians I've met. You know, I, I don't look at the front bench and go, I presume quite a few people here could probably do uh, a few anthologies for Faber and Faber. Mm. You know, whereas Kenneth Baker... Or, you know, when you... Someone like Hesseltine or uh, Lord Carrington, they did seem to be people you'd imagine that they didn't just buy the books to put on the shelf. They'd read some of them as well. Well, it's That's... also that you know the, the politician with the greatest hinterland I can think of um, of my lifetime, uh, my friend Michael Foote, who when he lost Devonport in 1955, he sort of was feeling a bit depressed, and he asked his dad about it, who said, um, "Oh, well, you should go and write a book." So he wrote a book about um, uh, how Jonathan Swift wrote a pamphlet which destroyed the Duke of Marlborough. The, you know, The Sword and the Pen, which is a fantastic book. It's page-turningly good. And you can't think... I don't think Dominic Raab's going to do that. I don't think he's going to go off and write a piece of genuine history. Um, I think he's going to write another book saying how the British are the laziest people in Europe uh, and basically the working class are scum, and, um, you know, which is what he wrote. He, he and his little Tory friend said, um, you know, the British workers are the laziest in Europe. And in fact, the British workers work... the longest hours in Europe with the lowest productivity probably because managers like Raab are completely without vision of anything to do with you know longer than end of next week yeah it is a well we won't we better as we said the, the country may not exist when and you're, yeah. you're going to have to live in Toronto for the rest of your life but at least we'll talk about the books that you well the first book because you've got uh, three books out at the moment from three different publishers there's a man not taking yeah. any risks and uh <laughs> The, the 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 first one uh, the the pen is mightier uh, than the word and of course yes pen and is are you know uh, close the, uh, but, but I think um, I think we should have a reading from this right now yeah the uh, I, I can't because uh, I've already had John Cage's lawyers have been on the uh, um, the, uh, the, the this this one has uh, I mean it starts off beautifully this 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 is a, 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 a silent book a silent comic and this this is what I, I particularly enjoy about your work is. With each year, you seem to find greater joy in your disgust at humanity. And I might be wrong about this, I don't know, but there's, there's something... I mean, we start off, the first cartoon strip is Creation, in which a bulbous man looking somewhat like, I think, Pozzo in kind of Waiting for God, or a similar kind of little bit of an evil in war quality yeah. term about him, basically uh, farts the universe into existence and yeah. eventually sees this dumb human ape creature and so shits in its skull to create a brain. I think that's a fair enough pricey, missing out some of the uh, middle pickings, fartings and burpings. <laughs> but, but there yeah. is, you know, there does seem, you, you, a lot of your work has a delight in disgust, which I can only see ultimately must be a coping mechanism for the frequent kind of crashing against the walls of, of, the, of the impossibility of, uh, of, of sense. Yeah, it's uh, a well-ploughed furrow full of shit which has been ploughed by my previous uh, satirists who... I am merely a, a tiny, tiny seedling in their shadow um, of Swift and Hogarth and uh, all the rest of them. You know, I've always maintained uh, well the basis of satire, which is uh, something which several satirists don't understand. I mean, um, Ian Hislop once said the purpose of satire was to puncture. 
pomposity, which is the most pompous phrase I've ever heard in my life. The purpose of satire is to remind people who think they're better than you and me that they like you and me shit and they like you and me will die. And you just look at the history of British visual satire, from Hogarth, Gilray and the rest of it, it's just tearing aside the raiments of power and privilege and authority and showing the shitting, pissing, stinking, sweating person underneath, um, which is fine, you know, that's what it's, that's what it's there for. And it's also it's funny because the basis of humour is to laugh at the horrible things which our brains have uh, allowed us to understand are terrible, like the fact we're, we're going to die, the fact that this disgusting stuff pours out of our bodies on a daily basis. And so what is the kind of er uh, human humour? It is this noise, which is, of course, the noise it make, the ship makes when it comes out of your body. And do that to any child under the age of one, and they will laugh. And... It's a clearly an evolutionary survival mechanism to laugh at these terrible things which would otherwise drive us insane with existentialist horror, just in the same way as we laugh at the idea that um, Theresa May is in control of the destiny of our nation, because if we thought this was actually the kind of thing we ought to think about seriously, we would go insane with existentialist horror. Uh, and so, you know, we said, oh, why are you so puerile, doing fart jokes? Well, actually, there's nothing wrong with schoolboys. I think that, uh, you know, I was one once. It's, it's funny. Everybody knows it's funny. Like, oh, it's about the quality of the fart and, and, yeah. and your image yeah. of, of the, the, the pompous, bulbous yeah. man shitting in the skull of uh, a naked idiot uh, <laughs> resonates with many of us in this yeah, current indeed, time indeed, of the world. Indeed. And, and, there is, and there, is, there is a great cartoon. One of my, one of my heroes is, is James Gilray, who is a miserable sod. I mean, um, <laughs> um, uh, but he did this fantastic cartoon early on in his career of uh, the, uh, George III and his consort being informed of the assassination of the King of Denmark by Pitt the Younger. And the king and queen are at stool. They are sitting on a sort of two-seater toilet, having a shit. And there's absolutely no reason why they'd be portrayed like this, being informed of the assassination of the king of Denmark, apart from the fact it's just hilariously funny seeing the king having a dump. That's all it is. It's just mm. stupidly funny. Well, that's, I mean, I suppose, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's where so much shame comes from, doesn't it? Because what can you not control? You, you yeah. can't control, you can't think your way out of vomiting, you can't think your way out of a terrible bout of diarrhoea, you can't think <laughs> your way out of having did, an did, erection no, or whatever yeah, yeah. it might be. I did, wa- I did once, um, I did a graphic novel version of Tristram Shandy, the mm. great 18th century novel, in the 1990s, and I went on front row, and it was not front row, um, loose ends, when it was live, on a Saturday morning, the day after the launch party. I had a very good launch party. Uh, all my friends were there who drink a lot, and I drank along with them. And I felt all right when I got up to have a bath and tend to get the BBC car in. And uh, it was being presented by Graham Norton because uh, Ned Sheridan was away somewhere. And I was sitting between Mariah Aitken and Clive Dunn with the bloke who did Chigley sitting over the table from me. And they were just talking about whatever they were talking about. And they finally, at sort of 20 to 11, they came to me, and uh, Graham really didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So, uh, um, luckily somebody else did and took over Arthur Smith had actually read Tristram Shandy so he started asking questions but just before they came to me the hangover hit me from behind mm. I mean like a sledgehammer hit me from behind I thought oh god oh god oh and I suddenly thought I'm going to throw up I'm going to throw up and another part of me said Martin if you're going to do something as career destroyingly bad as vomiting on live broadcast media 
do it on TV. Yeah, What's the point yeah. of doing it on radio? And amazingly, I managed to control myself. <laughs> well, there's such a lovely image of, 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 of you vomiting, Clive Dunn going straight to his dad's army character, shouting, yeah. don't panic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful <laughs> image. But, but that's, I, I found that whenever I used to do uh, loose ends, that was, again, because it was a bit early for those of us who were working late into the yeah. night and had drinks, and it would be about 10 in the morning that you go, oh, my body's starting to wake up now. <laughs> and it wants to reject some of the things that went in yeah. the night before. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, on the, uh, um, we'll, we'll move on to the other two books in a moment, but in terms of, because we, we had a discussion when we were at the um, Larn Weekend uh, Festival, and we, we talked a little bit about, uh, it was around the time of the Nazi pug, yes. know, which people know about, which is one of those kind of, uh, well, it's only the right wing who are protecting our free speech stories. Now, my general thing that I've noticed and, I, and I've watched this on the kind of social media to see when the free speech warriors pipe up and when they don't and they generally do seem very quiet on the speech that they don't like so they don't seem to be free speech warriors because for instance when some journalists and newspaper workers were killed in America they didn't say anything until someone said that Trump's dialogues didn't help and then they got angry because Trump was being dragged into but they weren't actually that bothered it seemed uh, about the assassination of journalists, which to me seems to be quite an important free speech yeah. issue, or the removal of uh, not having a stage at the march, the kind of anti-Trump march, the mm. fact that it was then decided. They didn't seem very... And this, I just, as someone who works within this area the whole time, and I would imagine sometimes at editorial meetings they do go, I don't know about Martin's cartoon. This, this, how do you feel about the, the, the free speech debate as it is currently being framed? It's screaming bullshit, is what I think. Uh, I, I think it is the most cynical garbage imaginable. Uh, I don't actually believe in complete freedom of speech because if you freely said whatever you wanted to or whatever you felt like it about whoever you chose, we would live in constant chaos. Uh, you know, it's like all those films which are predicated on the idea that somebody has to tell the truth all the time. Mm. Uh, and it's specious garbage to say that I should be allowed to say whatever I want about whoever I choose whenever I feel like it because uh, actually as a satirist, that's not what I do. I don't attack people less powerful than me. I don't attack people because of what they are. I attack them for what they think. And that's the difference between satire and the wider realm of humour in general. We laugh at everything, including the people we hate and so on. Um, but it's, it's a tactic, which is quite a clever tactic, of uh, Nazi apologists to say, oh, it's about free speech. Oh, what do you mean? It's just the worst thing ever that I'm not... I'm sorry, I'm putting on my... Brendan O'Neill voice. Um, you know, it's just it's a typical liberal elite saying, I'm not allowed to call my neighbour a, 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 a packy. I mean, it's just so terrible. I'm not allowed to do that. No, it's not. It's about being reasonably polite in public. That's what, you know, political correctness, which we used to call ideological soundness when I was a, a boy, um, it, it's about being reasonably polite in, pub, in public so you don't start riots and people don't get killed. Mm. That's what it's about. And for a bunch of situationist trot chances, like the Institute of Ideas, stroke the um, spiked online, stroke the Revolutionary Communist Party, to start talking about freedom of speech. I don't know if you've noticed, if you're a contrarian, as they are, they claim to be contrarians, they are situationists, what they're doing is they're sort of trying to, uh, I don't know what they're trying to do actually, uh, but they always, they always uh, as they try to devour their own feet, they always do it in a clockwise direction, which means they're always moving to the right. They never say the unsayable, speak the unspeakable from a left-wing perspective. It's always about appeasing power. It's always about uh, brown-nosing to the boss. And uh, I find this quite strange that, uh, you know, they're not going to jump up and defend me. I mean, it's interesting. I, I did a cartoon a few years ago for Little Atoms, 
uh, of Brendan O'Neill. Uh, and it was just him with this enormous forehead with a tattoo of Frank Ferrudi's name on it. Uh, and he said, well, there's so-called experts uh, with their stupid liberal metropolitan ideas. I think you'll, think I, you'll, think you'll see that I've uh, disproved the whole of the so-called oxygen is necessary for breathing uh, lies of the so-called experts. And it's great because every time I see on Twitter I see Brendan O'Neill's name mentioned, I just post this. And you get people saying, this is so outrageous, you're attacking Brendan like this, it's so terrible, how are you attacking Brendan like this? And I said, I thought Brendan believed in the right to be offensive. Uh, and he hates me. He genuinely, they, they genuinely hate me because I laugh at them. And they can't cope with that. Yeah, and I did get very visible. well with him when, when I did a panel, having had no sleep for two nights. Yeah. And uh, well, I've got this interesting thing. I mean, I've, He's a dead-eyed idiot. <laughs> it's a strange, yeah, the, 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 the elevation of... I never, yeah, the, the the contrarian. That's become a terrible, lazy word now, hasn't it? For slack thinking, witlessness, a lot. Of the well, time. it was it was the thing is, you know, it's what uh, Christopher Hitchens was calling himself towards the end, and I just have a horrible feeling. If Hitchens was alive today, we would be horrified by what he'd be saying. He'd probably be supporting Trump, and it is in its situationism. It's you know before the, the Second World War. This is in Evelyn War's diaries. Evelyn War's left-wing friends would go to country house hotels and be unspeakably rude to the servants to get them to a pre-revolutionary state of mind. And this is what the RCP, who are trots, uh, like most trots, they're just into gesture, they don't advocate anything that makes any sense, and they're just sort of trying to agitate things, annoy people in such a way that something will happen. It doesn't matter how many people die, whatever this thing that's going to happen does and when it happens, but they, they're, they're a total waste of space. But of course... They're always available. The BBC, as we know, is uh, staffed with um, extraordinarily silly commissioning editors who will just have anybody who will feel dead air. It is sad that on, on the tour that I'm doing at the moment, one of the most common conversations that I have when you know chatting with people afterwards is them going, "What's happened to BBC News?" And there's been a lot of yeah. you know, and, it, and it's and the very people who would have been the ones who would fight for the BBC's existence. Mm. When the BBC does something, you go, oh, actually, even though we've managed to roll over and we are all these things, it turns out they're still trying to strip us apart and privatise us. And, well, does everyone want... Hello? Sorry, where's all the... And they've, they've, they'll be gone. Yeah. Because they're not, you know, they're, they're, most of them just go, thank heavens the World Service is still... You know, that, that's the yeah. kind of... Thing. But, it, but, it, but it's this thing, this, this, this mad bureaucratic... I mean, I've been fucked about by the BBC for over 40 years, one way or another. I was a data control clerk, local radio, in 1978, when they wouldn't give me my holiday pay. Um, and I said it's in the contract, and they finally coughed it up. And then it was a standard practice then you'd get a job before you went to Cambridge, and then your first vacation you would ring them up and say, Got any jobs going? And in 10 years' time you'd be the director general. Yeah. You know. um, and uh, I rang them up, and they had no record of me ever having worked for the corporation because I'd, I'd always have a Christmas tree stamped on my file because I was clearly some kind of subversive. Uh, but, but for them to have peddling this fatuous bureaucratic idea of balance, I haven't noticed every time they report. Uh, the rape and murder of a child. They have a child rapist murderer on for balance. They don't do that. They really. They just no, it's it's, it. it's difficult, isn't it? Because people then always go, but what about? And so it doesn't matter how extreme the right wing person's yeah. been. Then they'll say, oh, but they had Owen Jones on on Tuesday, and somehow then that's meant to balance out whatever the yeah. the Glasgow Media Unit was always. I'm sure you used to read all those yeah. things. Yeah, once yeah. a year that would come out, and that was always a fascinating. Well, someone did say to me over the go, the clue's always been there in the word corporation. Uh, but the um, you know the, their reports on 
where the BBC stood in terms of reporting mm. news, for instance, and, and more recently in, in the book by oh man, I forgot this name. Julian Petley does some. Yeah. I don't know if you read. You know, a, again looking at, for instance, during the Iraq War, where we were meant to believe, that, of course, the old lefty BBC is pretty anti-war, and then you're actually watching them. No, no, it wasn't. And it's in fact of all. I think, if I'm right, saying that all of all the news broadcasters, uh, it was, if anything, the, the closest to pro-stroke status quo. I remember the beginning of the Iraq War. I can't remember the end of it because it hasn't, if you see what I mean. Mm. Uh, but and the BBC News, it was wargasm. You know, they was going whoosh, rockets, whoosh, planes, and they actually broadcast a uh, an Anglican army chaplain reading out a prayer. I mean, it was just so bizarre. And I thought, oh, that's you, you've gone back into your true Reithian mode. And of course, the point about Lord Reith is that uh, he was a safe pair of hands because he helped break the general strike. Uh, to imagine that the BBC is not part of the uh, British establishment is deranged. Uh, it is. It is part and parcel. It is cemented in, and when it is subject to political uh, infighting, it's just one part of the establishment fighting with another part of the establishment. I mean, I think we need to rewrite the BBC Charter, saying it has a duty to oppose whoever is in power. It actually has a duty to report everything damaging about that party, uh, because I think politics um, is always aspiring towards the condition of despotism. But they'll never be able to do that, will they? Because the people who go and work for the news are the people who've previously worked for the, the people in government and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they keep swapping back and forth. Yeah. So I found that once doing what was meant to be a kind of uh, a, a, a topical show was that all the political researchers never wanted to go too far because they were waiting to be called up to go and work for Whitehall yeah. and go and work with... So, so that was kind of, you know, would be a problematic well, thing. Well, it, it, is, it is the osmosis in both directions. You know, sort of journalist, politicians, we said Michael Foote earlier on, uh, Boris Johnson... Benito Mussolini, Julius Stryker, and on it goes. <laughs> well, you're, you're, this brings us, uh, well, if I say neatly, then it does, to uh, your pastrami-faced racist and other verses, because you have some stuff here, for instance, about the uh, hard-left uh, former Today producer, Rod Little. Um, do you remember that? People used yeah. to always bang on about what a left lefty he was. Yeah. Yeah, amazing, just because he looked like he had a fag around the back of the yeah. mic sheds with yeah. the two buttons undone presenting Sunday morning shows. So this um, collection of, of verse, as you said, the first one apart from your collection of limericks, yeah. uh, you quite a lot of it is about media, and it's uh, various different people that you would have bumped into mm-hmm. in some, some bars and so So um, where did this... When did you think, I need to... I've, you know, you've got two books out already. Yeah. And you thought, but I also... I, still, there's a throbbing. There's a, there's a tumour yeah, that is, I mean, is developing, and I need to lance it. It's, you, it's, it's, don't it's, lance tumours, obviously. But, but, well, you can. We're really good. No. Um, it's, it's quite weird that, that there are some things which can only be stated in a certain way. And it's in various sections. The middle bit is mostly made up of stuff I used to do for the uh, Independent on Sunday on the books pages when I just sort of have illustrated poems. Uh, but the, the early ones, the metrical rants, they're just some things that just came into my head. So pastrami face racist was just a sort of nice assonant phrase that came mm. into my head, and, and I just had to write it down. And, like, and likewise, there's, a, there's one called um, Hugo from Stowe. Yeah, that's, the, that's the straight after pastrami yeah, face which, racist. Which yeah. was inspired by um, our daughter Rose's friend Kitty, who works in PR. She was just around our house about a year or so ago uh, having a drink, and she was just ranting about these appalling men she encounters working in PR. I said, I can't stand it. Everywhere I go, I meet someone called Hugo from Stowe. And 
suddenly the poem was writing itself in my head. <laughs> it's great. He's enriching the rich by investing their dough in a hedgy hegemonic portfolio in a faraway country about which we know fuck all, though in fuck it or down Mexico with the spoils of his expertise, you'll find Hugo bellowing in bars in familiar tableau. Hey, dudes, where around here can a chap score some blow? Yeah. Lovely. And that part can be played by Alexander Armstrong when this is turned into a TV uh, but it's, um, it's sitcom, yeah. it, it's it's uh, there's I mean, Victor, you're right. There's an extra in in the same way that that the, the kind of frequently kind of bowel heavy splatters in your work. There's something also about the repetition of rhymes here, which again, yeah. uh, it it oils the vitriol. Is that the correct way? Yeah, of I, think, I, think, the, I, think, uh, I think I think that's right. Yeah. But it's um. But I, I, I was at who's Dan? This is because some of them I could work. Obviously, you've got one about Ian Rankin in there. Yeah. Uh, and then Dan, druggy Dan, the modern burrows, ploughed angsty and dystopian furrows, describing low, revolting fun while living in H and H one. Um, now that uh, who's Dan? Who's that? Well, it's obvious. I know it is, but I can't work it out. Well, he's a very good friend of mine. We've collaborated on many books together. Which is oh, it is <laughs> yeah. right. I presumed it was. Yeah. 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 The uh, so uh, yeah, I, I just wanted because some of the, some of them you don't hide at all, and no. some of them uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose yeah, similar number of syllables. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, so this is um, when you are the, when you were doing these kind of things that are actually going to be on for for news media stuff. What, how often do you hit a wall of people saying, "Do you know what, Martin? You can't go there," because I, I'm, <coughs> I'm in, you know impressed by a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the cartoons. I mean, that's the good thing about living in this dystopian future is it really does give a greater flair to I mean, a, a mutual friend of ours, Ben Jennings, mm. who does fantastic work and, yeah. and some some beautifully uh, hideous uh, anus based imagery of Donald Trump. I think was the one of the last things I saw him sketching yeah. on. So, what's but do you hit a wall? I mean, that, is, is there ever a point where? Um, because I know Gerald Scarf has got into trouble. Uh, I think sometimes for the Sunday Times. Uh, yeah, it got him. It got him the sack. I mean, it's, it's uh, they, they, were, they didn't actually say it in so many words, but they did sack him. Um, a dish served cold for a cartoon he did about Netanyahu, and um, which Netanyahu is of course one of Rupert Murdoch's client politicians, and so they just waited until Scarf was eighty, and then they sacked him, uh, which is why he went off to work for the Standard. George Osborne, who was a great fan of cartoons, weirdly. I mean, this is very particular. See, that's what I heard about George Osborne, was I, I was lucky where once I was at uh, breakfast about to go to Jodrell Bank, and I decided to nip off early, and then when I came back, they went, oh, you just missed George Osborne. And uh, I, 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 I didn't scream and, you know, rent uh, uh, the... Um, uh, but it was, um, yeah, it's... Uh, um, he does... I've, I've been told he has a greater level of humanity than might be expected... Uh, you know, because there's some yeah. people when you see him talk, he said, I'm, "I'm still not, by the way, pro." But what I mean is, there's some people where you go, "Well, he seems to be an absolute ass." And then every thing you see about them, and if you do meet them, you go, "Yes, no, no, this, this." But where you go, "Oh, this is someone who just can't play human when in the situation of the lights being on them." In the same way that I suppose Blair had a lot of tricks of doing the human thing. Yeah, yeah I, I, all of these, obviously, I'm thinking of very much seeing them in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and <laughs> each one will be placed and have to yeah. have the uh, yeah. uh, the test looking, you know, memories of their yeah. mother and people I mean, in deserts. You can you can normally tell the uh, the depths of the psychopathology by the level to which the psychopath thinks that they are an ordinary bloke. Blair clearly thought he was an ordinary bloke. You know, I'm, I'm just an ordinary bloke. He used to say, you know, um, he thought that. Hey, was really weird, 
And Hay was really weird, but not as weird as Tony Blair <laughs> in many ways. And uh, I'm told that by my friend Christian Adams, who was employed, who was who was um, rescued from the Telegraph, who were teaching him appallingly badly to go and do cartoons for the Evening Standard. He said that he was quite surprised by Osborne because Osborne was collaborative. He was willing to learn. He wasn't, you know, he was. It probably occurred to him that actually being an arsehole wasn't such a good career move. Um, which does happen very occasionally in politics. It happened most noticeably to Michael Portillo, which I thought was very interesting because, you know, if you cast your mind back to 1997 and everybody was talking about, did you stay up till... That was, it was a book, wasn't it? Were yeah. you up for Patillo? Because was that the year after he did that speech where he went, there's three words, yes. S, terrify the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah. that, that, at the time, that felt like a terrible cartoonish moment from something like GBH, you know, if you're yeah. in a GBH follow-up, yeah. going to a kind of Robert Lindsay character on the right. Yeah. Whereas now, that speech would just be with all of the others. Yeah, but he was, um, but, you know, people in faraway countries of which we know little, were emailing me and ringing me up and saying, isn't it great about Portillo? I said, but why on earth does this affect you? But he was hated globally. I mean, the, and it must get to you when you realise I've acted like such a tit for so long. The people I will never meet, millions of people I will never meet, find me morally and physically repellent. Perhaps this hasn't been such a good idea after all. Perhaps actually coming across as a kind of oily fascist is not such a good idea after all. And he changed, he transformed himself. And people I, I knew who knew uh, Portello from the 90s and then sort of met him again after he'd um, given up politics altogether, so he was completely transformed. He was serene, he was kind, he was nice. And previously he hadn't been, because he'd been carefully groomed by all these weird fascist dons in Peterhouse to go off and... But had he, had he managed to get leader? I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Failure has humanised him. Yeah, Success I think Success so. may well have... Yeah, but failure, you know... Uh, I mean, it, it was Enoch Powell who should know about these things who said all political careers end in failure. And they should do. Absolutely. What's, I mean, what's, what's the next step? Well, the next step um, in your political career is uh, only actually been expressed properly in some of the madder former Soviet states and in ancient Rome where they deify you. <laughs> there are some beautiful again that that actually works out very neatly but though uh, to your version of the communist manifesto which has some beautiful kind of melting uh decaying busts town center busts of the famous you know the communist yeah. leaders of Stalin and stuff but actually just before we get on to onto the communist manifesto um the uh i've been reading a bunch of jg ballard interviews from about 2004 hmm. and he talks uh a lot about you know at that point everyone was just shocked by bush junior you know th this this person who now is people who are considering to be quite avuncular um and then I started reading one of John Gray's uh, happy-go-lucky books. And uh, there was, <laughs> and there's an intro, I, th I think it's The Silence of Animals, where he, he kind of questions the very nature of democracy and whether on this scale uh, democracy is never really going to give you what you hope and will only create um, aggression and increase those who you consider to be on the outside. It increases the manipulation. And I just, you know, with what we're going through in, in the UK, with what we're go seeing in, in the US, is there a bit of you that ever thinks, yeah, I mean, democracy is, is one of those things that on paper is an effective idea? It's interesting that uh, the versions of democracy which we're looking at in some horror, of course, the people who are 
winning, aren't they? I think it's great. Uh, Bush, sorry, not Bush, Trump, didn't win the popular vote. He won what was essentially a rigged election mm. because of the Electoral College. Uh, I've been saying this for the last two and a half years when people talk about the will of the people. I just go to them and say, yeah, and what's, what's so great? What's this victory? What do we call that? Triumph of the will? Triumph of the will? Are we going to get there? Um, 17.4 million people, which is 10.5 million fewer people than watched the 1977 Morgan Wise Christmas special. And that in itself was also fewer people than watched the Mike Yarwood Christmas special earlier that evening, which means we have to watch the Mike Yarwood Christmas special forever. So does that mean we have to get Mike Yarwood out of retirement to do his Dennis Healy and then yeah. lead uh, whichever party he chooses yeah. in the guise of Dennis Healy? Yeah, uh, yeah forever. Now, that's a fact. Well, we haven't got time to whether the, the, the humanising of Dennis Healy, which I'd never, because I'm not quite old enough to remember before Dennis Healy was again seen as a rather avuncular figure, which yeah. apparently was entirely from Mike Yard's yeah. impersonation. Which, which, who, 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 silly Billy. Yeah, yeah. Fat, fat, but, that, but that's what, because sometimes when people do talk about the will of the people, etc., one of the things that I wonder in terms of democracy is can we count it as democracy if the. Uh, um, those who own the major uh, um, dispensers of uh, information are so few. Does that make? Does that? I mean, it, it, are we in a, a problematic time? We're, well, we've always been in a in problematic that. time because um, you know there have always been people who have used their wealth to wield power. Mm. Uh, the British press has always been a, a, a plaything of right-wing psychopaths who happen to be billionaires. Um, my uh, my late friend Michael Foote, who I was talking about earlier on, um, got sued once because he described uh, a newspaper proprietor as worse than Kelmsley. And Kelmsley used to run, the, used, used to own the Telegraph, and they were fantastically right wing. And um, he he had he had a very good run at winning libel actions. Uh, did Michael uh, one occasion when a whole bunch of people from the Tory press came round on, on his honeymoon when he, he and Jill Craigie um, were having a honeymoon after she'd left her husband and run off with Michael and they were in some boarding house in Bournemouth or something like that. And uh, all these reptiles from the right-wing press turned up to doorstep them to expose anything. He said, uh, well, that's all fine, but uh, if you run this story, I'm going to publish the names of all your proprietor's mistresses on the front page of Tribune next week. <laughs> all right? <laughs> and they all ran away. Um, but it's, it's, you know, politics is a rough old game. Uh, I thought what was really interesting was uh, Paul Dacre's last hurrah in the election last year when they threw absolutely everything they had at Jeremy Corbyn. Absolutely everything. You know, they were accusing him of eating babies for breakfast, that he was in the pay of... He was, in fact, Stalin himself, reborn, uh, combined with Hitler, weirdly, uh, and, and everything else. It's just, you know, it, if, if anybody voted Labour, the entire country would fall to pieces and then be eaten by dogs. And so what you like about Jeremy Corbyn, and I'd say quite a few things, two things about him. He's actually a really good campaigner, and also it all just washes off him because they've said it all before. There's nothing more to be said. And, and afterwards I thought, you know, there's the Sun and the Mail have done this in full cry. They've just released everything. They have thrown, they have gone over nuclear on Corbyn, sorry ass, and it didn't work. Mm. At which point, if I was uh, Lord Rothermere and Rupert Murdoch, I would take my editors to the vets and have them put down because there's no point in them anymore. 
There's absolutely no point in them. And just have what newspaper, most people buy newspapers to do the crossword or to read about the sport. They don't pay any attention to the, the uh, think pieces. So we're just in the, we're in the same times where whoever has the most money will attempt yeah. to manipulate yeah. the largest number of people. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, in, in, a, um, in a culture where, thanks to the externalisation of our id collectively in the interweb, where everybody believes that they should be allowed to say whatever they like, whenever they choose, about whoever they feel like. But at the same time, themselves must never be upset. And they contain these two contradictory ideas in their heads simultaneously. I think it's wonderful that you get, you get genuine Nazis. Nazis are meant to be tough, but actually the point about fascism is incredibly self-indulgent. Uh, that is the defining thing about it. It's not about stamping on people's faces with jackboots. It's about being incredibly lazy and self-indulgent to the point where you're actually going to have somebody telling you what to think about everything all the time because you can't be bothered to do it and they'll sort everything for you and they'll take away the people that annoy you because you hate them and put them in gas chambers and that's great, isn't that wonderful, just to make my life so much easier. No, it's pathetic. And they get so angry about Soros because... There is a man with money who isn't using the money to say that we should hate and kill our neighbours. That, though, and, and how, me, how, how dare that, he? That how is dare the he? most remarkable I've found, which is, again, of, of social media's inability to yeah. uh, manage it. When I was looking the other day at the number of quite high profile people who are still causing it, you know, he, he, he was a collaborator, uh, all of the, you know, this, this interview, which no one actually has, where he said, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I'll tell you the best time I ever in my life was, well, I used to love the Nazis and it was brilliant. You know, all of these things that he's apparently yeah. said. And, and the fact that he was 15, was he at the end of the I Second think he was World possibly War? Possibly younger than that. Yeah. yeah. So, Somewhere between fourteen and sixteen, uh, the fact that it's highly unlikely, yeah. for, you know, even if that was his his top secret, that that was a smashing time. That but, you know, but his holiday yeah, in the teens yeah, with yeah, Goebbels yeah. or whatever was. But it's, it's but it's the sort of it's, it, it's the, the imbecility of whining fascist snowflakes who say, yeah, but the Nazis are socialists because they're called national socialists, and you think I've sat in cold rooms with where the room temperature is in numerical terms, higher than your IQ. <laughs> Will you stop being so dumb? I, th- I think that, that's the bit that people... Because we're connected to so many people's thoughts where we weren't before, yeah. that's the bit... Because I, I, I think it's the muscular nature of the hypocrisy that I think people find most difficult, which is, you know, I, I used to find it in a much simpler way with, uh, you know, there was no point in arguing with creationists because the, the notions of language and evidence are so far apart that you aren't, you aren't having the same conversation. But sometimes you still keep going at it, even though, and, and you know, and get another well, very simple yeah. form would be flat Earth, yeah. moon hoaxes. I did once hear, I did once hear a fantastic um, argument against creationists when I was uh, when I was a student, and the Mormons came round one morning when I was in bed watching Tiswas, and I said, "Yeah, come back this afternoon." I went down the pub, got some of my mates over, and they came round, and they and they did their stuff um, uh, while we drank and smoked, and you know, offered them a cup of tea and things like that. But they didn't want. And my friend Tim then said, well, tell me, you're, you're, um, you're, you're creationists, aren't you? He said, yes, sir, we certainly are. Uh, which means you believe that, you know, um, nothing's evolved. That's, that, that's right. So it, for which they had no answer. Mm. <laughs> and then they made their excuses and left. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that, yeah, that, that's the bit that's, you know, it's moved on from that now into, into you know, the broad strokes of, uh, for, you know, when you think of what, what Trump would have made of, of Obama not turning up in the rain, you know, yeah. on... on um, but again, that bit where you go, you just have to realise that, that these people have always existed, perhaps. Oh, yeah. The muscular hi- hypocrite who... Because I, I remember a climate change uh, um, denying journalist who would write these little pieces uh, sniping at me because I once made a joke about him. 
And and I wrote to him. I said, you you've really got all of this wrong. I had I had his uh, um, email because that's where we had to get my email to uh, send a, a threat of, of taking me to court if I made the joke again. Um, I said, but look at all the things you've said about these people in your columns in the last three weeks. Look, all of these ad hominem attacks. All these. He said, yes, but that's not the same. And that's when you realise that we're all hypocrites, but some of us, when we are confronted, we blush and we go, oh, bloody hell. Well, I'm probably <laughs> going to be a hypocrite, but for the time being... I'd... And there's others where the, 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 the carapace is a kind of remarkable contraption, whatever it's made of. Um, Communist Manifesto. Let's talk about this. This, is, uh, this was your first book of the year, wasn't it? Or was there uh, another one my, before this? Well, I did uh, uh, a collaboration with my Tory friend, Andrew Jimson, and his guide to... Uh, British Prime Minister, which I illustrated, and I also uh, illustrated a book by my previous collaborator, Lawrence Stern, to uh, mark his 250th anniversary of the publication of A Sentimental Journey and, uh, a week later, his death. So oh, I've, not, I've not seen that one. The uh, Communist Manifesto arrived just too late to the Water Rats, where you did your... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, Marx's old boozer. So, this... Uh, you said it was 16 years old is when you first became... Well, when, when you first saw the Communist Manifesto, is that right? When well, I first read it, yeah. And, and your reaction to it? Uh, made complete sense. Made total sense. Um, I got it straight away. And I think that's probably one of the things that's wrong with it, that it makes perfect sense to 16-year-olds, that all the idea about historical determinism, dialectical materialism, the rolling tsunami of history and all that kind of thing, it just made absolute sense. But the other thing I thought about it... And, and I carried on thinking about it for decades, was actually how funny it is that Marx was, uh, and I subsequently read a lot of um, Marx's journalism that he and Engels wrote together for a, an American paper in New York in the uh, 1850s when Marx was in exile, beginning his exile in, in London. And he was just a fantastically knockabout, vituperatively rude journalist, particularly about Lord John Russell and his physical shortness it's really good knockabout stuff. And it's interesting, when I was uh, at the Edinburgh Book Fair uh, with uh, our mutual friend Phil Jupiter's talking about the, uh, the comic book, Communist Manifesto, and one of my old editors from The Scotsman was there, and the audience came up to me afterwards and said, when he was a very, very young man, and um, I think George must be in the early 70s now, he met a very, very, very old man who, as a very, 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 very young man, had met Karl Marx who would move around like a stand-up. He would talk like a stand-up. He would just sort of, the, the whole thing about him, he was bobbing and weaving all the time, moving around the place and cracking jokes. And um, when the wonderful Emma Haley at Self-Made Hero, who published other books of mine... Um, They're very good self-made. Well, yeah. in fact, but to, uh, I don't know your poetry publisher, but Knockabout are fantastic, yeah. and they, they do all of Alan Moore's stuff. I think That's right. New, there might be a new Hunt Emerson uh, thing coming out as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and well, Knockabout being self, self-made hero also did one of my favourites is the Nick Cave book, I think. It's a yeah. self-made hero yeah. one as yeah. well. Anyway, Emma phoned me up and said, um, Communist Manifesto, comic book? And I had previously been commissioned by them to do a comic book version of... Francis Ween's biography of Karl Marx, which I got my son, who was then an aspiring filmmaker, to write the script for. And very interestingly, I found myself suffering from almost textbook Marxist alienation. I was alienated from my work because I didn't have enough to do. Because the way I do, I mean, this is my fifth graphic novel, the way I work on them, I just make it up to go along. I don't storyboard things. I just sort of do it because it makes them more interesting that way. 
And uh, I was just a, a drawing machine. It took me three months. No, it took me long. It took me five months to do seven pages. And then I just sent back the uh, advance and said, I can't do this. It's too boring. So I had unfinished business with Marx. And so when she said, uh, when she phoned me up and said, Communist Manifesto, I suddenly had the whole book in my head. And it was that idea of the great grinding tectonic movements of history in the first part of the Communist Manifesto, where he's describing all history and the tears of history and class struggle and so on. And it's, you know, this sort of great wave. And then the second part is stand-up comedy, where he's taking the piss out of the bourgeoisie. So yeah, you call yourselves Christian moralists, you're knobbing your factory hands, you bastards, which is basically what he's saying. And uh, then the third part is him just, like any good lefty, laying into the other lefties he hates. And the fourth bit is, workers of all countries unite, nothing to lose but your chains, hooray. And it was all there, and I realised that I had to do it in a certain way, I had to do it as steampunk, I had to do it from 1848. He wrote this in a weekend in Brussels at the end of January 1848, because the Communist League, who had um, previously called the League of the Just, had their meeting in Clerkenwell in October 1847, and little Carl and little Friedrich went along and said, we'll write your manifesto, we'll write your manifesto, and said, yeah, we'll get on with it. And nothing came of this, and so they finally wrote to Marx and Russell saying, if we don't get this, by the end of January, we're going to get somebody else to do it. And so he was always a, liked surfing on the edge of a deadline, and so he wrote it in a weekend at the age of 29. And... Um, it was completely ignored in 1848. It had no role whatsoever to play in the uh, revolutions of 1848, which for the most part were nationalist revolutions, uh, with a liberal tinge to them. And um, it was after the Paris Commune when the leaders of the German Social Democratic Party were put on trial for treason by Bismarck, and the Communist Manifesto was held up as Exhibit A for the prosecution. And when Karl and Friedrich thought, we'd better get this out again. We might make some money. And so they published it again. And in the introduction to the 1871 edition, which is in German, uh, they said, we've changed nothing. We've changed none of the names. We haven't changed anything. So there are references to the French Prime Minister Guizot, who was actually out of office before the book was published in eight, the beginning of 1848. So, of course, this is an historical document. So I thought, OK, treat it as an historical document. Treat them so it's bit Marx with a black beard. It's 29-year-old Marx. It's 27-year-old Engels. And it's... 1848, it's the height of, you know, the mechanised industrial revolution. So it's steampunk as well. Mm -hmm. And I was very pleased with two creations. And it's always riffing off Marx's own words. So he refers to the, the great giant of modern industry. So there's this massive giant, which is this sort of steam-powered giant, which has a huge throbbing cock in the shape of, the, uh, of Big Ben because the governments of bourgeois societies are merely a committee to operate the interests of the bourgeoisie. And, um, and the other thing is the means of production, which are toilets with arms and legs, and the mm. cisterns are cash registers, and they pick up entire classes and flush them down them. And, of course, we get back to the shit jokes and this, this kind of thing, and it's what Marx was doing all the time. He, he and Engels were constantly making dirty jokes about people. Uh, and um, so you get that, you get this sort of crashing waves of tectonics of history and said so the second half is stand up and then you get take it from there but I also realised that I had to make some reference to the consequences of the Communist Manifesto which is of course the October Revolution and the horrors which ensued thereafter mm. uh, so that's dealt with in the aftermath which has no text uh, but of course 
the October Revolution has been and gone, the Soviet Union rose and then fell. I think Marxist-Leninism is probably a, a seriously bad heresy from Marxism because it's about uh, a hierarchical cult in many ways, clashing Hegelianism with Russian orthodoxy. You know, it's re re weird spiritual dimensions to it. Uh, but of course, what happened to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union? The life expectancy for men plummeted to about 52. Uh, it was taken over by turbo capitalists, and then the reaction to that was the men who'd stolen the assets of the state, uh, who used to work for the security apparatus of the Soviet state. I mean, Putin is a thief, he's just stolen the, the wealth of the Soviet people and aggrandized it to himself. And uh, he's one of those people, along with the other 43 individuals who own half the wealth of humanity. Uh, and so what Marx was saying, I think, still has valency and still has importance. It's not about forecasting the eventual triumph of the, uh, the proletariat, because he was a lousy prophet. It was about saying that capitalism is an amoral mechanistic system which actually reduces human beings, real, living, breathing, dreaming, loving, laughing human beings to uh, sacks of meat who are harvested for their surplus value. And that's the only meaning they have in capitalism. And that's the true message of Marx, which is worth still making. And on that note, the... Uh... <laughs> No, it's, 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 it's very. I mean, you, the the, the uh, water is absolutely rammed, uh, and you. Uh, and I wondered what what do you when you write something like this? Uh, what's the kind? Do you, do you get people writing to you? Do they? Because I I do find that comic books can draw me into ideas which are purely text based. You know that there's there's something about the potency of of. A, a, a visual and sometimes like Daryl Cunningham is someone that I like a great deal mm. he's very um, unlike your drawing it's very, very sim simple drawing but he psychiatric tales and uh, uh, science is it science or scientific science tales and uh, he did a book about Ayn Rand and he had a, tr tr it's a tremendous ability to you go it looks like there's almost nothing on this page and yet at the end of it you go whoa I've taken an enormous amount of information and he, mm. he has that brilliant way of distilling uh, an, an idea into one speech bubble and you don't quite realise how big that speech bubble's potential is until it keeps playing in your head. So, Well, it's... I mean, a lot of people have bought it, which is nice. Um, I was particularly pleased about the fact that 90 copies sold in Highgate Cemetery on Marx's 200th birthday. That's uh, what both Carl and I would have wanted. But the... Um, I hope they place it. I hope there was a dispenser actually attached to, <laughs> to, to, to the yeah. tomb. Yeah, um, and I've had. A, I mean, I have had very, very few people writing to me beyond just saying this is great. And what I particularly like about this is, you know, all the words are Marxes. Well, some of them might be Engelses, but most, almost all of them are Marxes. Uh, and so I was editing the book, and I was just putting this, filling the talks bubbles with what Marx had written. And I realised that anybody looking at this book has to read it twice because they have to read the text and they have to look at the pictures. Mm. And they're both shouting against each other in many ways. And that's yeah. what's so wonderful about what I do, which I stand... I mean, it sounds a bit wanky to say I sort of... I stand back in awe of what I do. No, I stand back in awe of, of the way it works, the way the visual works both with and against the text it is with. So political cartoons, which are what I've been doing for the last 30 years, uh, they're a chimera of text and image. And the text undermines the image or it reinforces the image, it does all sorts of weird stuff which um, you can't really analyse because it's, it's too slippery, it's too mercurial to pin down precisely what it's doing um, but it's something I think is really interesting, there is no verb 
in any language that I'm aware of which accurately describes what you do when you look at a cartoon and consume it. You don't read it, you don't just look at it, you don't watch it. And I've asked Arabic cartoonist friends of mine, they said, no, no, there's no, well, you know, we watch it like a film. So that's not right, is it? So no, it's not. <clears throat> because it's, it's on an unconscious level. Mm. It's on, no, not an unconscious level, on an inarticulate level. It's not about language, it's about something else. So, you know, we've had written language for five and a half thousand years. We've had drawn language for at least 40,000 years. Um, that, you know, writing is merely a byproduct of accountancy, but we were drawing beautiful pictures on cave walls 40,000 years ago. Beautiful, accurate, precise drawings of animals, uh, for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, in both instances we do this because it's how we recreate reality in safe mode. Uh, to make life bearable once more. Um, but it's also something which you take in, you consume in an instant, just like you consume the visual in an instant. One of the reasons why um, John Locke was very suspicious of the visual, as indeed he was of humour. Didn't like either of them because they were sort of dangerous and, su and subversive. And you know, um, So if we didn't have writing, it would be very hard to see how you could have a religion with the capacity to kill quite as many people as the great religions of the book have done. Yeah, it's got to be if said, just, you're, if you're, it was just drawing. Your you know? non-text run of just this fat man in tweed <laughs> farting and shitting, I don't think would have led to quite the same. No, uh, no, no, you know, no. As deities go, you definitely need some speech <laughs> bubbles to, to get them marching and burning the things down. Um, thanks very much for... Uh, so this is uh, obviously the first of our Toronto specials. Uh, we'll be talking to another of the uh, uh, great... Uh, Canadian personalities, but uh, thank you very much. Great Canadian personality, uh, Martin Rosen. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Please, that really helps us out, as well as pledging at patreon.com slash bookshambles or coming along to one of our gigs. Uh, hopefully we will see you at Nine Lessons in December. Back on Thursday with a, another new episode. Enjoy your weekend what's left of it. Or perhaps you've got all of it left if you're listening to this on a different weekend other than the one that this was released. Who's to say? This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.